and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is David A. Friedman, Professor of Law at Willamette University College of Law. We will discuss his article, Imposter Scams, which will be published in the Michigan Journal of Law Reform. So welcome to the show, David. Ah, thank you for having me, Brian. I've wanted to do this for a while, and I'm, I'm glad we've had the chance. Yeah, I'm really excited, especially that it's going to be about this paper, because I am a sucker for anything that has to do with fraud or imposters or people making believe that they're something that that they're not. Um, and, and this paper does a great job, I think, of telling both the history of imposter scams and also talking about sort of why they're a live issue now. But But for listeners who might not be familiar with the idea or the kind of the general uh, grift, as it were. Um, what exactly is an imposter scam and how big of a problem are they? So the way that I've limited the definition of imposter scam is scenarios where someone pretends to be someone who they are not in order to extract some kind of financial gain from someone who falls for that trick. And it has turned into the way the FTC records and aggregates state and federal uh, complaints. And these are only the complaints that are reported. This has turned into the um, the number one scam uh, in, in terms of categorization. It's, it's actually a head of identity theft, which is a slightly different, um, a slightly different problem, certainly a problem, but I think what's remarkable about that is that a lot of people are embarrassed to be taken in by imposter scams, yet the reporting is still pretty high. So what kind of numbers then are we looking at in terms of losses to, like, to the best of our knowledge? To the best of our knowledge, and again, these are only reported consumer losses, so total losses may be larger, but this is at least a half a billion dollar problem right now um, in, in terms of the magnitude of losses that are reported. And... Um, I mean, the number of complaints is uh, is also off the charts, and th it's the number one source of complaints uh, at, the, at this point, uh, ahead of that of identity theft, even. So are these kinds of scams like a new problem, or is this something that's been around for a long time? They are as old as dirt. Um, if you if you go back and, and you look, um, they have um, a route that goes all the way back uh, to the 19th century, and um, as soon as we see a new technology emerge um, or a new communications uh, network em emerge or a new payment method emerge. We see scammers, uh, imposter scammers, just jumping right on top of it, whether it's uh, the telephone or the speed of international mail. Uh, we, we always see imposter scammers falling, following right on the heels of, of that technology to use it to be able to, to hide and to be able to trick people into thinking they are someone who they are not. Uh, of course, there, there are the old school imposter scams, which took place in person. But as I get into in the paper, those are riskier to pull off because you could physically get caught, whereas today you could pull them off from anywhere in the world. Well, one thing that really struck me as fascinating and kind of unexpected about the history of imposter scams that you tell is just how consistent the kind of genres 
of many of these scams seem to be over time. I, I wonder if you could talk about sort of the evolution of a particular scam. I mean, one I really dig is the the Spanish prisoner one that you mentioned. Oh, yeah. So the Spanish prisoner scam has some uh, key elements to it where um, you have somebody who is um, uh, who receives a letter and um, in, in essence, it, it it's about freeing somebody who is uh, being held captive overseas. There's there are all these different variations of it um, uh, where a person in, in the United States will receive a letter that purports to be sent from a person of seeming prominence, uh, claiming to be a prisoner overseas. And there's usually a claim that they're being imprisoned for some kind of political offense. And the prisoner would reach out to their mark in America, claiming that they have this secret mutual acquaintance who of course couldn't be named for secrecy purposes and, and security purposes, but they had put the prisoner in contact with them in order to receive help and either being released or in unlocking a hidden fortune and this was going on in the 19th century and the early 20th century, long before we had uh, emails that resembled certain scams like that, which emerged and started to emerge in the 90s. Yeah, I mean, it's just so highly reminiscent of all those emails you get from like a Nigerian prince or somebody in 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 Russia or something like that. Well, yeah, you know, one of them is that um, one of my one of the more interesting ones that goes back that far is where the prisoner would write that he had a daughter being held uh, in a sense for money by a, by a boarding school overseas and that the prisoner had a stash of money in the false bottom of a trunk that was being held in pawn. And it could be unlocked if the money was sent to an overseas associate and then the money inside the trunk could be used to free the daughter. And of course the American would get to keep a substantial portion of that money uh, for their for their kindness, and people believe that stuff, and and I think that that's something which is just people do want to believe um, in some of these stories. They they do want to believe that they're helping somebody, that they're able to get something for free, and people like to believe a good story. They like to be flattered. They like something that's interesting, and it's human nature to be drawn into something like that. And and fear is also um, something that can be exploited pretty easily too in, in these scams. And we see that, um, we see that become an issue as well. So I couldn't help but notice that in footnote 12 of the paper, you mentioned a personal experience with an imposter scam. And I, I, I gotta ask you like, what happened? What was that experience like? And sort of how did you feel when you realized what this person had been doing? Well, okay. So I, um, I had worked with, um, and I think this goes to show you that anybody can be tricked or fooled by anything if you're just not looking carefully. Um, one of the things that I've had when I've done faculty workshops about pricing tactics is that there seems to be a universal reaction outside of consumer law or folks who focus on behavioral economics that well, that's a really interesting trick or scam, but I don't shop that way. I would never fall for anything like that. And then I have to do some work to show that, well, maybe perhaps they do uh, fall for that uh, fall for that scam. So this story, I worked with uh, a person for 
about six months or to a year. I, I didn't work with the person, but it's somebody that I saw every day. And he claimed to have been a Navy, a Navy SEAL, or it might have been even something vaguer than that. Like he was implying that he had worked in intelligence and he talked a lot about weapons and operations that he had been involved with and other countries. And I was sort of like, well, what are you doing here? We work at a management consulting firm and we're giving advice to insurance companies. This seems like a little bit of a letdown. And you know, he claimed to have a PhD. Um, and then I forgot about him for a while. And then somebody sent me an email, maybe a, you know, 10 or 15 years after I had last even thought of this guy. And it showed that he had risen to prominence at, uh, at I think, Texas A&M University and had become a direct report to the president of that university. And then finally, maybe he told one too many stories to somebody who really knew about the Navy SEALs, like he was advising them and somebody said, something's not right here. And they started to ask questions and it unraveled his entire resume. And this guy was being paid about $300,000 a year. And he was probably, by all accounts, doing a good job. But because his story was just his background was based on a, on a lie. I think, you know, he was, he was prosecuted uh, for misrepresenting his credentials. I don't think he um, was prosecuted severely, but he lost his job and um, kind of a shame um, that he, a talented guy who, who stretched his credentials. But the reason why I put that in there was just to, I don't really slip in a whole lot of personal anecdotes into my, to my articles, but I wanted to signal to the reader that I've been studying imposter scams and I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. And really we're all human beings. We're, we're all vulnerable. We all have a soft spot and there's always something that can trip us up and cause us to either ignore uh, something that is a lie or ignore a story that somebody is telling us. And even if we are paying attention, we, might want to believe it for certain reasons, either because we're afraid or because we think that there's an opportunity there. Well, so I wonder if you could then expand on that a little bit. Like, what is it about imposter scams that makes them so hard to prevent? Or maybe what makes it so hard to to catch the people who are running those scams? Well, um, the latter part of the question, I think, is is interesting. When we started to see advancements in uh, in telecommunications. I'll just put that broadly because it includes both the internet. Um, it includes uh, telephony. So uh, the, you know, the advance advances we've made in automatic dialing and, and before that robocalling, uh, social media, the ability to, to contact people along with the evolution of payment systems. So it's become easier for us to, transfer money to people that we don't know um, in, in a very rapid way. I think that it's enabled people to, it's enabled scammers to scam people at a high volume. And so they don't need to be as successful on an individual level. And then to be hiding overseas in places where in theory they are reachable. And occasionally we'll see a sting operation that takes down an operation, say, um, in India, for example. But it's really hard uh, for domestic uh, authorities to uh, to track these folks down. And I think that while these scams were accelerating, they're, 
their real interest in cooperating with other governments was limited to focusing on on terrorism, not not this kind of fraud, even though it's obviously turned into a major nuisance and a, and a major day to day hassle for for everybody, because we're all dealing with the attempts uh, of imposter fraud every day, even if even if we ignore them. I mean, how many times does your phone ring with a number that you don't answer or you get an email that's fraudulent or you get an email at your university claiming to be your dean because somebody has looked at the website? Um, no. The reason why they do this stuff is because it works. And if you do it at scale, you only need to reel in one fish um, every now and then to make a lot of money. And perhaps in a part of the world where um, American, the American dollar goes a long way. Well, so, I mean, I wonder about the technological context then as well. I mean, like how exactly has historically and maybe especially like in recent years, changing, developing new technology sort of facilitated the execution of some of these scams or maybe also made it possible for scammers to sort of do scams that are either new scams or to do them in new ways that hadn't previously been possible. Sure. So you, you, take, um, you, you, you take a scam that would be difficult a scam that would have been more difficult to pull off 30 or 40 years ago would have been what I now refer to as the, the grandparent scam. And then we'll talk about the romance scam too. But the grandparent scam is um, you have an older person who's on social media who discloses too much. They leave their Facebook page open, and we all know that Facebook's demographic is skewing older. Or they choose the feature where they identify who they're related to. Uh, and that's open for others to see. And a scammer sees that and is able to figure out who that person is and calls them and spoofs their caller ID, pretending to be a sheriff somewhere and says, hey, your grandson Johnny is locked up here. And if you don't bail him out, he's going to have to stay in prison overnight. You're going to have to wire us some money. Or if you can't wire us money somehow, uh, because that system may have been shut down, iTunes gift cards are always a way to get us money and we can handle that. Um, that because the information is more readily available today, it's easier for scammers to kind of just dig up and say, oh, all right, let's make a project out of this and let's find 10 people today to, to try this on. Um, romance scams um, used to be a whole lot more difficult to pull off in person. You know, in, in the old days, if you watched Dateline NBC from 20 or 30 years ago, you'd see that... Um, somebody would have to invest a lot of time in person to pretend that they were romantically interested in somebody and then wind up somehow fleecing them out of all of their money. Whereas today, um, we have that phenomenon known as catfishing. And some, some people are really good at working a long, slow con where they say, hey, you know, we're, they, they're able to connect and send fake pictures and Really, I mean, in a very there's some very sad stories out there where, um, you know, there are a lot of lonely people in this world. And if a scammer happens to find one because they've been trying to do this to thousands of people and they get on a dating site or they maybe not even through a dating site, through um, through just a, uh, any kind of platform where they can connect with people, they engage in this dialogue over time and, and people get attached. And then finally, one day it ends with. I want to meet you and I'm in London. I just need another $5,000 to 
get some paperwork done and to be able to fly to see you. And the money is transferred to them somehow. And then that person disappears forever. Um, Without the ability to connect with people, that wouldn't happen. Uh, Another thing, which obviously is a systemic problem, we've all been getting calls for the last, especially the last five or 10 years, just an outrageous amount of calls. And if you, you pick them up, a lot of them are people pretending to be, um, they, they sometimes are able to spoof their caller ID to pretend that they're from Microsoft or a company like that. And they're able to to dial just thousands and thousands of numbers. Um, I mean, international long distance phone calling used to be really expensive. Now, uh, because of uh, the way that we can generate phone calls over the internet, the cost of reaching out and touching someone, which was AT&T's old slogan, is very, very low. So if you do all of this dialing, um, you know, eventually you're going to be able to hit somebody and be able to talk them into doing certain things, to, into paying for services they don't need or, or stealing their information, whatever. Once you get that person's trust or um, you can do a whole lot with them. Um, and so I think the cost of communicating with people dropping has certainly changed things from the old days. And and there's a, a chestnut of a case that Klein, Ramsire, and Bainbridge have put in their book about um, a, a bunch of people getting scammed in a furniture store in the 50s where there's a man who was dressed in a suit and he was described as having frosted gray hair at the temples and he takes a deposit on a piece of furniture and they come back to collect the furniture and they claim that they don't have any, the furniture store has no idea who they're talking about, that somebody snuck onto the floor of the furniture store and, and apparently just took their money and didn't give them a receipt, but looked credible. In the old days, in order to do something like that, you'd really have to put yourself at risk of, of actually getting physically caught. The way things are set up today, you can do those sorts of things at high vol- volume while you're hiding. So I think that really explains you're hiding from prosecution. You're hiding from detection. I think it really explains that the economics of this have changed. If you think about the cost as the risk of getting caught, the cost as the time invested in finding a mark, the cost of doing this has gone down. And I think that explains why we've seen this explosion in the, in the last 10, 20 years um, about why this has risen on the billboard charts of scams. Well, so what has the government done to try to prevent these kinds of scams, try to limit the ability of scammers to be successful and try to catch the scammers themselves. And like, how successful have, have we been? Uh, not, I would say not very. And, and that's the, the proof is in the pudding. And uh, the government's been, when I talk about the government, I'm talking about the Federal Trade Commission. I'm talking about the Federal Communications Commission, because a lot of these um, scams are being run through through uh, telephony um, and state a- AGs as well. And really the first tool that they've tried to use, which I think has a limited effect, is warning people. Um, now, there's a certain audience that can warn that, you know, we certainly are told to warn other people about things like grandparent scams, for example, or other kinds of phishing. We all get emails sometimes at our universities that say, hey, there's a phishing scam going on and be careful of this sort of thing. 
The problem is scammers can move on and do something else. And we may not be, we may be alert to one type of scam, but we may not be on to whatever's coming next. So education is a good thing. It never hurt, but it clearly, it clearly doesn't anticipate what's coming next. The, um, the problem of the large problem with this huge volume of, of robocalls really that have been emerging from overseas is that the, the do not call list does not deter somebody who just isn't within the reach of it. So if you're generating a scam from overseas, really the only way to stop it is to find some kind of technological solution to address it. And by some evidence, there, there have been solutions or there's been good thinking about how to stop these sorts of things for almost 15 years. And it's just been on the back burner. And, and I think part of the reason is that really the, 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 you know, the, the telephone companies don't, didn't really have a whole lot of incentive to stop it, um, to stop all these inbound calls or to stop caller ID spoofing from, um, from being able to be a, a tool for, for these folks. And the government was slow to, was slow to act. And even at this point, even though regulations are being promulgated and we're seeing some advances um, in the technology and we see this new approach, which is going to require almost like a handshake between legitimate telephone numbers in order for um, a phone number to connect, it's, we're still in that phase where the government is passing laws that authorize the formation of committees to study things. And so we're still in that phase of of moving in the direction of being able to stop these things. And I think even since I've published this paper or since I've written the draft of this paper, we are seeing some of the private providers start to be able to mark certain calls as scam calls or, or um, telemarketing calls that you'll see it pop up on your phone. But the system hasn't really been put in place. Part of that is I don't think that the telephony providers are investing a lot in voice. Voice is not where the future is. Um, it's data is where the future is and building data networks. And um, certainly that's even more the case now than it was maybe even six months ago. So in order to invest in voice, that requires a little bit of a push and a nudge uh, from our regulators. And the other thing too is we've seen some, we have seen some domestic enforcement actions, but um, they they don't seem to be all of particularly common. I mean, when they find somebody, they're able to really go after them and bankrupt them because the penalties are really severe. We don't see a whole lot of domestic uh, actions. When we do see them, they're rather severe and they certainly raise the flag and they're extensive and they're legitimate, but they might deter people from doing that here, that sort of telephone scam from from here in the United States. But it doesn't really do much from anything that's originating, originating, say, from Central Asia or or the Philippines, or, or even from Mexico, where we see some of these scams now emerging. Well, so in the paper, you kind of talk a little bit about regulatory structure in thinking about how to kind of combat some of these imposter scams. And in particular, you talk about the concept of a least cost avoider and how that might structure the way we think about who should bear the burden of kind of preventing or uh, frustrating scammers. And, and I really like the way that you use the furniture store case to kind of illustrate that and then maybe think about how we might um, translate that same idea into thinking about, 
you know, newer technologies and how we might kind of approach them the same way. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. So um, I'd first preface this by saying I'm pretty clear in the paper that I don't think that there is a solution to ultimately eliminating imposter scams. I think we can slow them down. And I think if we are to slow them down, we have to accept the fact that there are certain players that are better positioned to slow them down, to throw sand in the gears, to warn the public about what's happening. The great thing about the furniture store example is that when those when that family complained about what had happened to them in the furniture store, the furniture store was held to account for it. And, you know, in that old case, I think you can see the evidence that the, that the retailers in New Jersey got together. They didn't like that case at all um, because they didn't want to be held responsible for charlatans uh, walking uh, or mountebanks walking around their, their aisles. They, they felt that that was something that they, that the consumer should be aware of, that the buyer should be aware of. Uh, but, but the judge in that case said, well, you know, from an estoppel perspective, this is the type of thing that we think um, the store should be responsible for, almost like being responsible for allowing a banana peel to be in its aisles. You should have control over who is in your store and who is doing what, because they are the people who are best able to prevent um, that sort of problem from happening, not the consumer who walks in the store and sees somebody authoritative. Presumably, they assume that that person's going to work there. So they're, they're not on watch for it in the way that a store should be able to know who's supposed to be in there and, and who shouldn't. Likewise, I think that um, the, uh, the telephony providers are in a position to probably put more of a chokehold on, um, on the, the caliber of who is calling from where and what they're doing. Uh, one thing that I've really focused on is that, I mean, the gift card industry and the or the payment card industry, so iTunes cards and Amazon cards, they've been that's been a really valuable uh, offering, and they're still fairly new. Uh, I mean, they've certainly grown as a as a mechanism for transferring money to people, either as gifts or as other ways of transferring money to people. But perhaps those entities could do a better job of of regulating. Um, or, or somehow warning people who are buying them in bulk and in a hurry to, to ask them why they're doing it or to put a stop or, or a limit on how many you can buy at once. Because we see that a lot of, um, especially the panic-based scams, involve people being sent out to the store to buy these things and to send them that way. So there are a whole lot, there are a whole lot of players that are routinely involved and used as tools by imposters for them to be able to reach people or to extract money from people. And just like the furniture store was better able to monitor monitor the floor of the furniture store, the entities in these positions are probably in a better position to do something to, to stop these scams as they're unraveling. Yeah. I mean, so I found this idea of kind of looking at the problem from a least cost avoider perspective as really helpful. I couldn't help but wonder whether there might be reasons why companies developing, introducing, managing new technology might see some of this cost avoidance as imposing posing transactions costs on others, or maybe just you know, transferring transaction costs or 
costs associated with the harms from one group of consumers to another group of consumers are, you know, like from a kind of more holistic perspective, like what kind of, like what kind of principles would you think that regulators might think about or take into account when thinking about sort of how to allocate the burdens of cost avoidance? That's a really, that's a really interesting question. Um, And I would say that I think regulators should look at who's benefiting the most from the innovation here. Um, well, that's probably not the exact right way to put it, but um, there's there's certainly a benefit to being able to provide a payment system that enables money to be or value to be transferred very easily like that um, in in a rapid sense. There's there's a real value to that. So if if um, an entity is benefiting from that, they are probably in a better position to spread um, the risks that are associated in offering that kind of system and, and the, and the security holes that are, um, that are put into the system much in the same way that a software company has to invest in security that protects everyone. Um, so it's true that you may be protecting the more, shall we say, vulnerable people at the expense of what sophisticated people, if you want to look at it that way, might be providing that there's going to be a subsidy, but by making that platform safer um, and having that principle, that general principle of safety out there and perhaps applying it across the sphere, we're really protecting everyone. If we, if we accept the notion that anybody can fall for a scam um, or for an imposter, and that's a principle that goes back to the 19th century, um, then we're really protecting everyone. And I, I would go back, and I don't know if you saw this anecdote in the, um, or the story, um, in the paper, but um, the, the the targets of these scams from the very beginning are quite often people with a lot of money anyway. Um, so um, if you go back to the invention of the telephone, it took about 10 years for people to figure out how to take advantage of the telephone. I think the telephone, um, we have our first telephone system really installed in 1878. By 1888, we see uh, people teaming up to extort people, um, wealthy people, because that's who had telephones in their in their homes or had the need for telephone lines very, very quickly. So I think a system that um, that puts pressure on these intermediaries winds up affecting everyone. And I don't know that the that the distributional concern is really all that great when you consider that we're all human beings and we could all fall prey to something like this or have someone in our lives that we care about fall prey. Uh, to something like this. So um, elderly people might be more inclined um, to to be vulnerable to certain types of scams. And that's going to cut across really a lot of different spectrums. So I don't know if that answers your question. But. Oh, for sure. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed reading your paper. The stories are great. And I think you had a lot of really thoughtful and rich suggestions on how we might think about this problem from a policy perspective going forward. So thanks a lot. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, a cheat. 
will tell you a word like love and you'll give him your heart mm, a cheat will tell you a word like dream and then when you start they don't realize the heartache that a word can carry a dream must mean a nightmare in their dictionary a cheat will tell you a word like true and after you fall a cheat will tell you a word like through when you've given your all they don't realize the one they're cheating can love somebody new the cheat will end up being cheated too. Oh, the cheat will tell you a word like true and after you fall. A cheat will tell you a word 